Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit SayMyThyroid.com forward slash peptides. Different infections can trigger different autoimmune conditions, including Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. And in this episode, I interviewed Dr. Nicholas Hedberg, who I've been following for many years. Although Dr. Hedberg doesn't only focus on infections these days, many years ago he did focus on different types of infections. And while he mainly works with Hashimoto's patients, in the past he has worked with Graves' disease patients as well, which is why I thought he would be a perfect fit for this topic. And so if you are interested in how infections can be a trigger of thyroid autoimmunity, you are really going to enjoy listening to this episode. And with that being said, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. Thanks for joining us here. And with me, I have Dr. Nicholas Hedberg. And Dr. Hedberg, we're going to discuss infections and thyroid health. And how are you doing today, Dr. Hedberg? Great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, you are welcome and thank you for being on. So before we start, I am going to dive into Dr. Hedberg's bio. So he is a chiropractic physician, a board certified chiropractic internist, board certified in nutrition by the American Clinical Board of Nutrition and an herbal medicine fellow. And Dr. Hedberg is also the founder of the Immune Restoration Center in Asheville, North Carolina, where he consults patients worldwide. He is the founder of the Hedberg Institute, an online functional medicine education platform for practitioners of all types who want to build a highly effective and successful functional medicine practice. And he's also been a speaker for many years in the functional medicine arena, presenting on autoimmune disease and the connection between infections and chronic illness, which again is what we'll be discussing here. And then he's also the author of the book, The Complete Thyroid Health and Diet Guide, a comprehensive guide to understanding thyroid disorders from a functional medicine perspective and how to manage autoimmune thyroid disease. So doc, let's go ahead. If you don't mind, I'd like you to start out by discussing your background, how you started working with people who have autoimmune thyroid conditions with also a focus, more focus. I don't know, currently, if you focus a lot on infections, but of course, with Hashimoto's or Graves, they are going to have infections. That's a potential trigger. So why don't you Tell everyone how you got started. Right. So I first started practicing 18 years ago and I was, uh, you know, building my practice and giving lectures around Asheville. And I realized that the thyroid lectures always drew standing room only crowd compared to all of the other illnesses I was talking about. So I knew there was something there that, that I really had to look into. And then patients started coming in. And they were just taking Synthroid, and it really wasn't working, not feeling much better. And so the combination of those two factors really 
drove me in the in the direction of focusing on thyroid. And then once you start to focus on thyroid, you realize that the vast majority of people with hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's disease, and there really is no medical uh, treatment for Hashimoto's disease. So those patients are really left without many answers from the conventional side of medicine. And then as you dig deeper into Hashimoto's, you start to find out that a lot of you know practitioners are overlooking chronic stealth infections as the driver of autoimmunity. So, you know, a lot of practitioners are focusing on really important things like gut health and vitamin D and and things like that. But the infectious aspect I I found over the years is is usually overlooked. And uh, that's just always been a main interest of mine, the immune system, chronic infections, and especially viruses. I'm definitely most interested in, in chronic viruses. All right. And yeah, the same applies with Graves, of course. What most people with hyperthyroidism, they have Graves disease. And also people with Graves disease uh, tend to have viruses. And this is not just clinical experience, but in the literature too, there's a correlation with both Graves and Hashimoto's for different infections. And of course, we'll we'll talk about some of the different infections. And well, why don't we start off by discussing how can an infection trigger an autoimmune thyroid condition such as Graves disease or Hashimoto's? Right. So the the immunological description is very complex. There's six potential different mechanisms, uh, but I, I'll I'll break it down so that you know people can understand it and uh, not go into tremendous technical detail. So basically, your immune system recognizes viruses, bacteria, parasites, fungi, things like that. And those immune cells attack those particular microbes. And in autoimmunity, the immune system is unfortunately making antibodies against your own tissue. So in the thyroid, it's, it's thyroid tissue. So there are particular types of infections that can look similar to thyroid tissue. The immune system is looking at amino acids. So what those look like on the surfaces of particular infections and on the thyroid. And so it makes antibodies against whatever has those same amino acid sequences. So that's basically how it happens. There are other ways that it can happen, such as there can be, say, a a pretty strong infection in a particular organ like the thyroid. And so there's a lot of debris in that area due to inflammation. And in that soup, the mix of debris and infection and self-tissue, the immune system gets a little bit confused and it starts to tag the self-tissue and the microbe that's in that particular organ as foreign. And so both get attacked. And that's called molecular mimicry. And we've known about that for quite some time. Actually, about 1972, it was discovered that cytomegalovirus was connected to lupus. And that was really kind of the first discovery. So it's it's not something new. So that's almost, you know, 50 years we've known about it. But that's basically how it works. All right. And then besides potentially causing autoimmunity directly through that molecular mimicry mechanism, some pathogens such as maybe H. pylori parasites can also affect the gut, increase intestinal permeability of the gut, 
And could that also be a mechanism too, through that like triad of autoimmunity where it's maybe not a trigger, but just making the person more susceptible? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's studies on intestinal permeability and leaky gut in direct connection with Hashimoto's disease and other autoimmune diseases. And, you know, you mentioned H. pylori, that's going to have an impact on multiple factors, not just in the gut, but on what micronutrients are being absorbed and utilized. So, yeah, some of these infections can definitely affect the gut and create dysbiosis and increased permeability, and that will lead to autoimmunity. Why don't we talk about some of the different infections that you see more commonly in your practice with your patients? And, you know, or you could also, in addition to that, also bring up those in the literature. Like I know Yersinia enterocolitica is one, I think, associated with both Graves and Hashimoto's. But for example, I can't say I see a lot of patients with Yersinia when I do testing. But what are some of the more common infections that you see with your, with your patients? Right. Well, I'll, I'll start with Yersinia because fortunately it's, it's missed very often in stool analysis. So it has to be tested in blood as well, IgG, IgM, and IgA antibodies. And oftentimes you'll, you'll find the stool analysis misses it, but it's active through blood testing. So that's one connected to, to Graves and Hashimoto's. The, the connection there is the, the surface proteins of Yersinia look just like thyroid tissue. And then H. pylori is another one that's very, very common. Now, the connections with H. pylori and Graves are stronger than they are with Hashimoto's, but there is there is definitely a connection with both. And that's, you know, you can pick up H. pylori pretty pretty accurately with a stool test. Breath testing and, and blood testing can also be done. But um, a lot of the studies on H. pylori and autoimmune thyroid disease, they are using stool. So that, that's a good way to pick it up. And then if you get deeper into the intestine, uh, like blastocystis hominis, there used to be just one case study published in the literature on this particular parasite and Hashimoto's, but a paper just came out, um, it was either last year or the year before, very good paper with uh, direct connections showing blastocystis hominis was connected to Hashimoto's disease. And they went a little further. They actually treated the blastocystis hominis and the patient's symptoms got better and their immune markers got much better and their thyroid health got better by eradicating the parasite. So it's one thing to just identify a particular infection connection. The other is, well, can we actually do something about it? And will that help the patient if you get rid of it? And and blastocystis hominis, in that case, it, it does. And with H. pylori, there are some studies that show if you treat H. pylori, uh, the patients can reduce their thyroid medication dose, and some of their thyroid markers can improve. Uh, so that's that's um, another connection there as far as treating the particular microbe. And then outside of the gut, and sometimes inside, the main one is going to be Epstein-Barr virus. This is going to be probably the most common virus in all types of autoimmune conditions. And there's a lot of literature on 
Epstein-Barr virus and uh, both Graves and Hashimoto's disease. So those are those are really the most common. I mean, there's a lot of other ones like uh, HHV-6, herpes-6. There's some good studies on that and Hashimoto's disease. Unfortunately, you can't really accurately test an adult for HHV-6 reactivation. Um, it's kind of an ambiguous way to know if it's reactivated or not. But viruses can transactivate each other, meaning that if EBV reactivates, it can activate another virus like HHV-6 and vice versa. Now, with all the herpes viruses, the the treat the functional medicine treatment for them, it, if you treat one, say Epstein-Barr virus, that is going to be effective for all types of herpes viruses. So even if you don't know for certain if one of them is positive or not, if you treat one, you'll you'll be treating the other. Okay. Do you usually treat the viruses then with like like an antiviral herbal approach? Is that what you take? Yeah. So it's kind of a, a three pronged approach. So the first is these, especially the herpes viruses and Epstein Barr. They rely on what's called NF kappa B nuclear factor kappa B, which basically means that there's inflammation. And uh, Epstein-Barr virus relies on that to uh, proliferate. And so the first thing to do is to use some kind of anti-inflammatory that uh, works on NF-kappa-B. And the most common ones that I'll use are curcumin, uh, black cumin seed oil, uh, resveratrol, quercetin. Those are all effective for NF-kappa-B. And then the second prong is... You want to support natural killer cells and what are called CD8 T cells. These are cytotoxic T cells that control things like Epstein-Barr virus. So to support those, you'd want to use uh, a mushroom, and I'll usually use cordyceps, and reishi uh, could also be used in that case. So that's kind of the second way that you support it. And then the third is with uh, monolaurin, also known as lauric acid. And this uh, dissolves the fatty acid envelope around the virus, so it exposes it to the immune system, so it's not as stealth uh, without that. So those are kind of the three things that I'll do to uh, approach chronic viruses like EBV. So it's, so regardless of what, whether it's um, EBV or cytomegalovirus or another virus, parvovirus, you know, pretty much that approach seems to help. And so what EBV on a blood test. So, you know, if someone tests positive for um, EBV, uh, the IgM antibodies, and that's more of a, an acute infection where, you know, maybe when they first got it years ago, the IgM marker would show up. So what's your take on people who have IgG markers? Because most people do have IgG. So do you pay attention to, like, there's three different IgG markers. I know I spoke with uh, Dr. Kasha Kynes, who wrote the book, The Epstein-Barr Virus Protocol. She pays more attention to that early antigen antibody. Others are focused more on how high the antibodies are, like if they're you know, in triple digits or undetectable. So how do you interpret the EBV markers? Right. Well, let's, let's talk about what's very clear in the literature on Epstein-Barr virus diagnosis and, and interpretation. So you're exactly right. So the IgM is elevated during acute infection, 
And on average, IgM is gone in about seven weeks. And then in the vast majority of people, that will not return for life. Now, the two IgGs that you're talking about where people are just looking for elevations, the uh, nuclear antigen and the viral capsid antigen, those alone can't tell you if there's reactivation. The only thing that can tell you if there's is that there's a high a viral load where there's a high immune response. But that doesn't mean that there's reactivation. And so you do have to mainly look at the IgG early antigen. Unfortunately, the major labs like LabCorp and Quest, none of them have the early antigen on their standard panel. They just have those other three. So you do have to request to add the early antigen in. LabCorp used to include the early antigen, you know, for the last 16, 17 years, and then they just took it out a, a year or two ago. So you do have to look at the the early antigen. A few caveats there. The early antigen, there are some individuals genetically who will just have elevated early antigen for life, IgG, even when the virus is no longer active. So you do have to take that into account. And then it becomes more of a clinical diagnosis. And then you also have to look at the complete blood count, uh, looking at their white count the neutrophils and lymphocyte ratio. If you see the lymphocytes creeping up towards the neutrophils, that can be an indicator that there's chronic viral activity. And uh, the early antigen, you know, you might, you could run it and it could be high, but it takes about six months for the early antigen to calm down and become negative once the virus is successfully deactivated. So you could also be in the middle of a successful deactivation of the virus, but it's still positive. So those are all really important things to know that a lot of people aren't, aren't looking at or don't know. So you don't want to jump to conclusions if the early antigen is high. You have to uh, factor in all those other things that I talked about. Do you test for Epstein-Barr and other viruses with pretty much all of your patients? Not not all of them. It really depends on how ill they are. A lot of them come in and they've already had Epstein-Barr virus testing. And uh, 99.999% of the time, the early antigen is not included. So a lot of times if I am testing, I'm just doing the early antigen, not even looking at, at the other markers. I test, uh, I couldn't give you an exact percentage, but I would say the vast majority I am looking for viral activity in patients with autoimmunity, and the vast majority come back uh, positive. Going back to the gut infection, so so you mentioned Yersinia enterocolitica, you rely more on the blood testing. So I know what H. pylori, when, when H. pylori is positive and you treat H. pylori, from what I understand, you don't want to retest in the blood because those antibodies could take a while to get rid of. So is it the same with like Yersinia? If, it, if you detect that it's positive in the blood and you put someone on a treatment protocol, do you just put them on for a specific amount of time? Or like, how does that work as far as the retesting with the Yersinia enterocolitica? Right. Yeah, I actually had to call the, uh, the lab... So if you test your cinea through LabCorp, say, they send it out to a specialty lab 
called a Roop Lab, and I actually called them and I had a long conversation with a pathologist there. If you really want to know about laboratory diagnosis, you want to talk to pathologists. And we talked about it for a while, and uh, there's no real, actually, definitive way to be certain if the infection is successfully treated if any of the markers are still elevated or not. So you run the IgG, the IgA, and the IgM, and now you can be pretty confident with the IgM that it's only going to be around for seven weeks. So if you see that elevated, you know that it's a recent Yersinia infection, so they got it from some contaminated food or water. Most of the time, you're not going to see the IgM elevated. These people are chronic. So that leaves you with IgG and IgA. And the IgA can actually still be high if the Yersinia is uh, successfully eradicated. It can take a long time, over a year, for that to become negative. And so the IgG is really the last thing to look at. And once they've had it, that can actually go away uh, completely. So it's different from a lot of IgG tests where usually they're elevated for life once someone's had it, but someone can have a, a negative IgG test in this case. So the main purpose of the blood test is just to identify if they have it and uh, it's relatively recent, or if you see the IgG and the IgA are both positive, that's a really strong indicator that it is an active infection. And what H. pylori, how commonly do you see that in your patients? I mean, it's very common just because of my, my patient population with Hashimoto's, you know, probably anywhere from 60 to 80%, somewhere in that range, it, it's positive. Now, H. pylori is a little bit tricky with the interpretation, uh, especially if you're doing stool. So like I use the GI map test from Diagnostic Solutions. Yep. You know, I've, I've had long conversations with the, uh, the lab developers there, and it becomes a clinical diagnosis if you see it. So you're going to see a particular number. And so that does mean that there is some H. pylori, there is some activity, which we would expect because such a large portion of the world has it. The question is, is it causing a problem? And if it's elevated, so if it's in the red and the clinical picture fits, like they're actually having symptoms of H. pylori, then that's a case where you would most likely want to treat it. But if they have, you know, if they don't really have any gut symptoms at all and it's high, then I'm not going to, you know, do an extensive treatment for H. pylori just because of the lab test if it doesn't fit clinically. And so that's how I approach those uh, H. pylori markers. Do you, when, when you do treat it, do you take more of a natural approach or do you typically recommend the triple therapy that consisting of the antibiotics and the PPI? Well, I do a triple therapy with triple uh, probiotics. So I use a, a lacto bifido blend, a Saccharomyces boulardii, and a spore. I use all three types. And then uh, a lot of those patients have hypochlorhydria and uh, strengthening uh, stomach acid production, strengthening digestion, 
along with the uh, probiotics is actually very effective for most people. If, if it isn't, then I just go in with a few herbal antibiotics uh, for three or four weeks, and that, that clears it out quite nicely. So talking about symptoms, so you mentioned that with H. pylori, you, you rely on the symptoms. Are there cases where you, when it comes to infections, where you don't rely on symptoms, where it could potentially be a, a trigger, even if the person isn't experiencing certain symptoms associated with that infection? Yeah. I mean, almost all of them you can have, there could not be, there might not be any symptoms. So HHV6 and Epstein-Barr virus, they might not really have any strong symptoms related to those viruses, but they're active. Yersinia, I mean, you know, you can have Yersinia in the gut and it's there, but it's not really causing any major symptoms. So that's another one. And again, H. pylori, if if they don't really have the symptoms of H. pylori, but they have a very strong autoimmune response and, um, you know, we're doing a lot of the things that we would normally do and they're not moving along the way that we would like them to, then I might go in and, and do a trial and knock it out in three or four weeks and see if we get some improvement. You're not really going to do any harm uh, treating H. pylori al- alternatively because we're not using antibiotics uh, that damage the gut microflora. And uh, just thinking of other infections um, that are connected there, like hepatitis C is, there's a really strong connection with hepatitis C and Hashimoto's disease. Actually, hepatitis C actually has a stronger connection with Hashimoto's than any infection that we know of. Hmm. In fact, hepatitis C can actually leave the liver and it can set up in the thyroid it's a, called an extra hepatic reservoir so it can move and it, it can infect there and drive autoimmunity and some people with hep c especially early on i mean they might not have any symptoms so it's always a matter of doing some extensive investigation all right and then parasites so as far as the research uh, i I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think there are any other parasites in the literature, at least associated with Graves or Hashimoto's. But have you seen from a clinical perspective where maybe not Blastocystis hominis, but another parasite is present, the person's symptomatic, and that seems like it might be a trigger where you treat the the parasite and the there's a positive correlation with their immune markers going down, their antibodies going down? Yeah. So... Right, blastocystis hominis. It's really the only one that I've ever been able to find in the literature connected to thyroiditis of any kind. Um, but you know, there is a hypothetically, there would be some similarities with other types of parasites if you look at the blasto mechanism, because blastocystis hominis is going to drive Th seventeen, which drives autoimmunity, and people with parasites. Not always, but a lot of them tend to have a Th2 polarization. And when you successfully eliminate any kind of infection that's causing, that's driving Th17 or a Th2 polarization, then uh, theoretically you would help the immune system and help autoimmunity. Again, no no strong evidence to support that other than blastocystis hominis, but I'm sure you've seen it and I've seen another practitioners have seen it where you treat the parasite and and they do get much better. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, of course, to be fair, many times we're working on other things too. It's not just, just the parasite as well. So sometimes it is difficult to make the connection, but, but there have been cases where I'm pretty sure it was due to a, you know, a parasite that's not in the literature. And, uh, and Mm -hmm. again, that, that greatly helps. So, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And speaking of parasites, so you said you, you do the GI map, which I do as well. So would you agree that stool testing, I mean, it could be helpful, but also with parasites, it's not perfect. You could get false negatives. Now, GI map, again, it's DNA based. So arguably it, it might be you know, more accurate than other testing, but still there's always a chance for a false negative, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, the way the way I explain it to patients is you you have, you know, like the villi in the intestine. And the stool analysis, I mean, it's mainly just going to pick up the stool that's passing over the brush border of the intestine. And so you can have, you know, deeper infections deep in between the villi. And uh, you can have parasites in there. You can have Yersinia. You can have all kinds of things. And there's no way to pick up everything that's in someone's gut on a stool analysis. It's just impossible. And so we can't go by that exclusively. Uh, just because of the depth of the the spaces in between the villi. Do you recommend after you treat someone for whether it's H. pylori or a you know, parasite, a little bit different, like you said, with uh, with viruses, but specifically the gut infections, do you usually retest after treatment or do, do you rely mostly on the presentation of the person and, and maybe some other markers like blood markers or... Yeah, I mean, early in my career, I, I would retest. And then as the years went on, uh, I just tested less and less. And if the patient is feeling good and their symptoms are gone, then I leave it up to the patient if they want to retest or not. I have some patients who they just really want to see on paper that everything's cleared out and that they're going to be okay going forward. And then other patients... Uh, they're they're feeling great. There's aren't any indications that they have any ongoing infections. And then I say, you know, you're fine. You're good to go. We don't have to to necessarily spend the money and and retest. And biofilm. Do you, do you use any biofilm disrupting agents like uh, N-acetylcysteine or proteolytic enzymes when treating infections? Yeah, N-acetylcysteine is is really the main one that I use for biofilms. Um, the the herbal medicines that I use, pretty much all of them uh, disrupt biofilms. Uh, if I'm using something for an intestinal parasite or H. pylori or fungi, that's I mean the the triple you know probiotic approach plus the herbs. And then, and then if it seems like a difficult case and we use some NAC, you know, it's usually more than enough. There are, you know, products out there that are, are designed for biofilms. I've used those in the past. I didn't really find an amplified, uh, you know, successful outcome using those. So, you know, the fewer the supplements, the better, the way I always approach things and, uh, the things that I do usually work well without using those those extra products. They definitely can work, uh, but the question for me is always, do I really need them 
in the, in this particular patient. Makes sense. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And how about stealth infections such as uh, Lyme disease? Uh, I mean, viruses, I guess you could consider those as stealth infections too. But Lyme disease, co-infections such as Bardinella, Babesia, can those be potential triggers of autoimmune conditions such as Hashimoto's and Graves? Yeah, I mean, the, the literature is, is weak on all of the tick-borne infections, but there's a couple papers on Borrelia burgdorferi. That's the, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease and, and thyroiditis. Those are, are a little bit ambiguous, but any, any kind of strong infection that drives an immune response can potentially trigger autoimmunity. And there are a lot of anecdotal reports of rickettsia, which is also transmitted through ticks um, and some other biting vectors as being connected to Hashimoto's. I mean, you, you do find in the Lyme community and in Lyme patients, a fair number of them have autoimmune thyroid disease. Now, whether that's the, those particular microbes from the tick, or is it just because their gut is so messed up from all the inflammation? Is it because, you know, they've been on so many antibiotics, which has caused dysbiosis and, and gut problems, uh, whether it's all the inflammation, the stress of having Lyme disease and things like that. Um, it, it could be any of those things. Uh, I can just say that the literature is pretty weak on, on the connections there, but you do see it a lot. Yeah, that is true. I, I was diagnosed with or chronic Lyme three years ago, and you know I have a history of Graves' disease, and I was concerned that it might re-trigger. Unfortunately, it didn't, and you know I tested mm -hmm. all the thyroid antibodies, not just the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, but but yeah, you mentioned stress. Uh, so one one question is the impact of stress on infections, especially like viruses and. I mean, do you agree that to some extent they're they're more opportunistic? Like the, the the I guess if you could talk about the importance of optimizing one's immune system health, having healthy adrenals, improving stress handling. How much of a role does that help in preventing certain infections? Maybe not as much the gut infections, or, or maybe even the gut infections as well. But especially viruses, stealth infections again, Lyme disease. It's a huge, huge factor not just because of the what it does to the gut and the immune system, but lymphocytes have cortisol receptors on them and chronic stress drives uh, cortisol elevations and that causes downregulation of cortisol receptors on lymphocytes. And so the immune response becomes weak over time the longer someone is under stress and that allows these opportunistic infections to grow so stress is, I mean, that's really number one in my practice, figuring out every potential possible stress input to the system and figuring out how to mitigate that because you just, you won't really get great results unless you're addressing all those factors. And stress also, adrenaline drives histamine and uh, histamine drives chronic viral activity. And adrenaline and cortisol, those both drive a, a Th2 polarization, which drives Th17. And unfortunately, Th17 cells are 
the major drivers of autoimmunity. So whenever it comes to the immune system, there's always multiple factors there. You can draw out all the connections and it looks like it looks like a big web. But uh, stress is definitely at the one of the most important fundamental aspects of, of chronic infections and autoimmunity. Definitely agree with that. You know, I had a case of shingles a few years ago, too, and that, I'm pretty sure that was just due to a, a ton of stress the, that summer. And uh, yeah, so, mm-hmm. so I agree. Stress management, getting proper sleep, extremely important. And, you know, of course, diet, you know, diet, lifestyle factors, very important. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well, thanks, Dr. Hedberg. Appreciate you sharing all this information. It was great chatting with you about infections. So can you share with uh, with the audience where they could find out more about you? Yeah, my website is drhedberg.com, drhedberg.com. That's my where I have my articles and my podcast. And uh, that's for, for potential patients. And then the Hedberg Institute, that's hedberginstitute.com. This is for functional medicine practitioners. And I have functional medicine courses at the Hedberg Institute that they can sign up for and learn how to effectively treat all these conditions that we've talked about. Well, again, thanks, Doc. Appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to again, talk about infections. Appreciate your time. And, and again, hope everyone uh, learns a lot. Great. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks again for listening. And although I've been fascinating with infections for quite some time, I became even more interested in infections when I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease as well as Bartonella in 2018. I'm sure in the future there will be an episode where myself or perhaps a guest expert will discuss Lyme disease and co-infections, but I'll say here that infections are many times overlooked and at times they can be difficult to test for and difficult to treat or eradicate. Speaking of eradicating infections, I definitely plan on incorporating Dr. Hedberg's triple therapy probiotic strategy he mentioned for H. pylori, and he also gave some other suggestions that I'm sure I'll start using on some of my patients. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.